Higher Things thanks you for your support. Please continue to support the work we do with youth by going to our website at higherthings.org, clicking on support and donating securely through PayPal. Your gift helps us in our mission to support pastors, youth workers, and parents in daring our church's youth to be Lutheran. Hello and welcome to the Gospel Boldly podcast where we confess with St. John that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, We're your hosts. I'm Thomas Lemke. And I am Pastor Eric Brown. And I do want to give you a heads up. If you hear something that sounds like a a mass herd of high-pitched elephants, it's just the opening day of preschool, which is beyond my office walls. So so I don't know how loud it might get, but they should be arriving any moment. Actually, it's the first day of our four-year-old program. Mm. Yesterday was the first day of our three-year-old program. So my youngest son got to go to his first day of preschool. He was oh, quite, very good. quite pleased with that. So, But no, we are, are here and glad to be going on. And we are in the middle of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, if I recall correctly. And we're mm-hmm. having an interesting discussion over what does... Isaiah from the Old Testament actually mean between Philip and a what, Thomas? An Ethiopian high-ranking eunuch, as a matter of fact. See, he, he's emphasizing that the fact that the guy's a eunuch is denoting his office within the, the hierarchy of the Ethiopian government. Very good. So <laughs> uh, any other thoughts that uh, we should go over before we uh, dive back into the text? Just the one uh, you had pointed out. Uh, even just now that the the text is from Isaiah specifically talking about the suffering servant. And that's what's going to be the subject of conversation between the eunuch and Philip here as we read forward. All right. If you, if you recall, the spirit drops Philip out there and suddenly the guy's on the scroll, re- riding on the chariot, reading the scroll. Hey, come on up, talk. Let's do, do, do. How about you uh, reread the Isaiah verse mm-hmm. and then we'll roll in that way. Sure. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Excuse me, I just coughed. Uh, <laughs> this verse is actually is one of the most informative ones for how preaching should occur. Uh, when I preach, I generally have a text. Normally, I preach off the given gospel text for that Sunday. And I like how Luke describes what Philip does here. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You take this little chunk of the Bible— You take this little passage, and the point is it's never just a passage in abstraction. It's never just, oh, well, what does this tell? What does this tell us about the mindset of ancient Israel? Well, okay, that that might be 
interesting information, but that's not the point. The point, the thing that all Scripture drives towards is Here's the good news of Christ Jesus, what he has done for you, what he has accomplished for you. So it's just a a beautiful tie to say, look, the, the point of this scripture, as the point of all scripture, is to be a launching pad into the discussion of what Christ Jesus has done for you. And I'd guess that he does a pretty good job at it because Mm -hmm. of what we're going to see next. So, but any thoughts there on using that scripture as a launching pad? Um, well, I guess since you've asked, I, I did hear a story about a gentleman, uh, Sam Shamoon, if you've heard of him. Uh, he was in a bookstore and there were a couple of Jewish boys in there uh, looking at um, some various uh, religious texts, you know, uh, specific to their religion, Judaism. And uh, he went over and started talking to them about the gospel and about Jesus. And of course they said, well, you know, my rabbi said Jesus is a fake and all this stuff. Shimon took them to this text and asked them who it was talking about. <laughs> they were like, it's Jesus, isn't it? Oh my gosh. He's <laughs> like, yeah, why don't you go ask your rabbi about that? So it, it doesn't just work in the first century right. for uh, proselytizing. Well, this is one of the things that, that we can neglect. The Old Testament is all about the coming of the Christ. And, and over and over again, we see these calls to the Old Testament, these citations of the Old Testament, because really... When Philip is walking around, he doesn't think of a New Testament because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. Mm -hmm. So when they're doing everything off of the scriptures, they're all going off of the Old Testament. So I don't know. Sometimes we almost have become a little bit of a little Christologically lazy, maybe, Mm -hmm. in terms of that we just always default to the New Testament, talk about Jesus, and we we don't think about Jesus in the Old Testament. But no, everything in the Old Testament is driving forward to Christ. That's the point. So, okay. all right. Well, what happens next, Thomas? Yeah, good question. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, so this is kind of neat. Well, what hinders me from getting baptized? If, if, if Jesus is the fulfillment of all the stuff of the Old Testament, and there is to be a baptism for repentance and life and salvation, being joined to Christ, dude, I want that. Anything that hinders me. Ah, well... No, <laughs> let's. As baptize it turns you. out, <laughs> um, now as a note, uh, Thomas, I have a question for you. I'm going to bring up a textual difficulty. Done, okay. done, done. Uh, so, verse 36 reads, "And as they were along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents him from being baptized?'" What's the next verse after verse 36 in your text? Uh, verse 38. Uh, do you normally count from 36 to 38? That's some screwy math right there. No, no. Norm- well, what happened to verse 37? Well, here in my in my footnotes. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't say what happened to it per right, se. Right. It's been excised. Mm-hmm. But it gives verse 37 um, and, uh, and uh, adds some manuscripts add all or most of verse 37. So without... 
intimately knowing the background of this text, I would say probably the manuscript attestation for this verse is relatively poor. Right. Uh, what happens is one of the things to remember when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he didn't number the verses. These are a much later uh, addition. In fact, uh, Luther had no idea about verse. Verses were added after Luther's time. So uh, that I remember when uh, the Martin Luther movie came out with Joseph Fiennes uh, a little over a decade ago. Uh, I, I went and saw it with one of the uh, history props from the seminary. Nice. And and he groused of it because Luther quoted Romans chapter something verse something. <laughs> and, and it's like they didn't even have verses in Luther's day. They they didn't delineate it. So and this is one of the things if you note, um, like in the catechism and such, the small catechism you'll have and, and Titus says in chapter three, and then you'll have a bracket after that with the verse numbers. That's because Luther just wrote Titus chapter three and didn't give verse numbers because they didn't exist at the time. Mm. So what happens is you get just uh, there. There were some versions, which were the ones that got numbered, that had a verse, a thirty seventh verse in it. That is, let's see. So Philip said, "If you believe with all your heart, you may." And he replied, "I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God." Well, the problem is a lot of the older copies didn't have that in there. So it's like, uh, we're not sure if that should be in there. Mm -hmm. And there's really maybe maybe around 10 or 15 places where that kind of comes up in the New Testament. And some people make a big deal of, oh, this is terrible. No, it actually means, well, you, you have pretty good copies. Can, can, I, can I talk about copying for a bit? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, Thomas, if I asked you to copy... Acts chapter 8, how would you do it today? Well, I'd slap it on my trusty uh, copy machine and uh, Xerox the sucker. Okay, assuming you didn't have a copy machine, copier, how would you do it? Uh, how would I copy the text? Yeah, yeah. Well, if I didn't have a copier, I'd take a picture of it. You're being difficult. Okay, <laughs> how would you do it if you lived... Oh, 600 years ago in a monastery in France well, that'd or be hard Ireland. to take a picture with. Um, in that case, uh, let's see, 600 years ago would put me at uh, before the printing press or, right. or almost contemporaneous. So um, I'd have to do it by hand. Right, right, right. We do things by hand. But what you do is you'd have one copy of the text over here and then your copy that you're making over there and you'd be looking back and forth and writing dun, 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 dun. That wasn't the way they copied in the early church. The way copies were made in the early church would be someone would be reading the text, often maybe in the context of sermons or services, and you would have scribes who would be writing down basically almost like a stenographer in court mm -hmm. or someone taking notes in class, copying it down that way. So what happens is you do get some typos simply because the guy who is doing the reading isn't necessarily just worried about reading. It might be, here. here's a point here. So they, they sometimes make additions to the text just without thinking. This is one thing that I, I, I get to read the scriptures for a living, and there will be times where I will have to catch myself and say, oh, I just <laughs> changed a word there accidentally. Mm -hmm. You get, you get, 
They're not typos, they're speakos. <laughs> and basically, we have so many copies of the scripture that we can actually do a history of where these speakos mm-hmm. really started and originated. So this is one where it's like, yeah, that probably shouldn't be in there, so we'll just put in the footnotes and carry on. So For was sure. that more confusing than it needed to be? No, although, you know, at some point we might actually do a, a whole episode on uh, a manuscript transmission and, and things along those lines to really clear it up. This is just one of the things where it, it's, okay, uh, it, it's one of those things that just becomes slightly difficult to work with. However, what I will say is this, there are basically two different approaches to textual transmission. You have within the the Christian community where they freak out over everything. Mm-hmm. Then you have the classics community. I, I was a classicist as an undergraduate studying ancient Greek manuscripts, things like that. We have so many more copies of the Bible than we do of anything else. It, it, it's astonishing. So we'll see these little variations. Go, oh, this is terrible. It shows we don't have any authentic copy. La, la. Whereas the classicist will say, we don't have anything in Greek of Plato f- until 1300. We'd give our eye teeth for what you have historically with the scriptures. It, mm-hmm. it, it's so much more, the, the text of the scriptures are so much more reliable than anything else we have from the ancient world. It's astonishing. So, yeah. So well attested. I've heard it called a, a, uh, a an, an embarrassment of riches, I think is what it was. Right. It, it, well saved. So, all right. How much time do we have left? Uh, before before the break, break I, we can do a minute. All right. Do you got anything in a minute? So, Philip baptizes the eunuch, and then, boom, you're off of there. You're going back and preaching up to in Caesarea, and eunuch, you're going to go back to Ethiopia. And guess what the eunuch does when he gets to Ethiopia? Starts telling people about Jesus. Again, nice. the gospel is spreading because, and he doesn't need to have a whole bunch of new stuff. It's just like, oh, dude, check it out. All the stuff about the Messiah from the Old Testament, which is all over the place, has come to pass in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the suffering servant of God. Mm-hmm. Cool beans. All right, let's take a break, and then we will be back with the backward life. And we are back on the Gospel Boldly podcast, and we are moving to the part of the show that we will call the backwards life, where uh, Thomas will bring up some type of trendy, pithy, casual popular saying from the world of Christianity or some otherwise idea. And we'll come at it from a different angle and see what we can get it from looking at it. So uh, Thomas, what, what do you have for us today? So there's a, a, speaking of trendy, there's a, I guess a tendency on the part of some circles when a natural disaster hits. And right now I'm speaking about the one in Houston uh, but here, I think by the time this airs, everybody will be speaking of the one that hits the East Coast wherever it hits, right. you know, if, if that does come to pass. For the time being, I've forgotten the name of that particular. Irma. Okay, there you go. Nobody will be forgetting the name by the time I think this right. is up. But that being said, you do have sectors of the population that look at such things and interpret them as divine judgment upon uh, the population upon the city, the municipality, whatever, 
for X, Y, or Z offense, sin. And this even happens outside of Christianity, of course. There, you know, there's a lot of pagan religions. They have their gods, their storm god or whatever. And if you didn't make the appropriate sacrifices, well, you're just being smited by, uh, by Zeus or, or Poseidon, as it were. So my question for you today does pertain to, I'm trying to figure out exactly how I want to phrase it, but I think you'll take it in, in whichever way you'd like. How do we approach that sort of assessment when it comes to natural disasters? There we go. Well, on the, on the one hand, um, I, I'm not really interested in trying to do a one-for-one one correlation, simply because unless the word of God says, this is happening because of this, I don't get to say that. That's mm-hmm. me putting words in the mouth of God. Second of all, rather than trying to think about, okay, who messed up that this happened? Jesus does say, hey, when the Tower of Siloam fell, no, the, that should, it's not to point out blame, it's to figure out, yeah, we should all repent. So, so if you want to use that as a, a reminder that we should repent, that is fine. But this is something that actually came up in my men's Bible study last night. Mm. And, and we were talking about this, or at least in a slightly backwards angle. Hey, good. <laughs> and one of the things to remember is we do confess that God works all things for the good of those that love him, right? Mm-hmm. And and that God actually does great things even through suffering. This is the way of the cross. We call Good Friday Good Friday. Why? Well, because the, the outcomes are good, I guess. Be, because through this suffering, God works fantastic good. Now, uh, the question was asked, well, why would why would a good and gracious God allow such a thing to happen to the folks in Houston? What ha- I, I, I hope lives are protected and kept safe in, in Florida or wherever in the East Coast this thing hits. Uh, it's hitting uh, Puerto Rico as we record. Mm-hmm. I hope folks I know in Puerto Rico are safe and even the folks I don't know in Puerto Rico are safe. But I, I want you to think about something. This past summer, in fact, most of this year, we have been contentious and on edge and divided and sniping at each other all over in America. Is that a fair characterization of the summer? Oh, yeah, for sure. The the summer of instantaneous rage, the moment someone does something not exactly like you. All right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Harvey hits Houston. And what goes on in Houston for, for weeks to follow? Uh, people band together to rescue individuals, what things of homes can be recovered, and in general, preserve life and sanity for all involved. We had a whole week where we didn't have any stupid political bickering. Where, where, and Remember, we were created by God to love our neighbor. <laughs> what did the natural disaster mean? Suddenly everyone was too busy loving their neighbor and actually taking care of their neighbor to snipe about stupid stuff that doesn't matter in the long run. So this is one where, where if you want to say divine judgment, actually, you know, it maybe a divine break, maybe divine mercy. It's a very backhanded thing, but but because of disaster and tragedy, that's often when we end up being brought together to show love more and more. Mm-hmm. Again, God works good things even through hardship. So it's one of the things where if you want to try and 
use a disaster to pin a tail on the donkey rather than use a disaster as an opportunity to love your neighbor, you're kind of missing the point. You're kind of missing the opportunities that God gives. And so this is one thing where when you come across tragedy and hardship, you don't have to try to fix things. You don't have to try to explain this is why it happened. If if someone you love dies of lung cancer, that's not the time to go preach a sermon on the dangers of smoking cigarettes. <laughs> but rather, it's an opportunity to show love. And, and I do think it is astonishing that ev- even the pagans amongst us realize, oh, this is a time for us to actually care for our neighbor, to be generous with what we have. You know, that's not a not necessarily a, a, a terrible thing. So that's fair. All right. Does that kind of work as a, a it, it's one where I, I, I don't know. Well, and really, if you want to go about a whole divine judgment, there is that whole promise about, you know, I'm not going to wipe out everyone with the flood, too. So if you want to go, yeah. Why, why are you so eager to find judgment? Find places where God is at work showing love and mercy. Ah, all right. There you go. Good. With the uh, torturous, I will make myself seem torturous, but with the merciful, I will show myself to be merciful. What are you looking to find? Mm-hmm. Oh, that could have been a whole long, another long rant or sh- such. But <laughs> let's get on to to uh, more ranting and violence and threats. Another tragedy, another disaster that looks like it's going to rain upon the church, but actually is used by God for something much better. Start with chapter nine, Thomas. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. All right. So what's Paul basically doing? Uh, (laughs) Persecuting. (laughs) He, He is getting open warrants for people. Normally today with our legal system, if you have a warrant, you have to have the person's name, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is just an open warrant. It's anyone who follows the way, anyone who is a Christian, anyone who, who does this Christ thing, I am authorized to bind, arrest, and drag back to Jerusalem. I'm coming for you. Say your prayers because I'm a coming. So, so basically, you've already had people who have left. So basically, Paul's like, uh-uh, no, no, they don't get to leave. I'm going to go drag them back here. And you know what? We stoned the one of them. We can get some more of them. It's hunting season. So this is not just accidental persecution or, or one that is incidental or, or just you've got a guy raging here and if you avoid him, it'll be okay. No, no. He is hot to trot to get people. Because this is Paul's ticket to fame. This is his mm-hmm. ticket to notoriety. He's going to be the big anti-Christian person. Yeah. <laughs> or so he thinks. Getting, so. getting that branding going already. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Got to have your brand. Let's carry on. Okay. Let's see. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. All right. So here's a beautiful little uh, example of the punishment fitting the crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, Generally, if you think of light, 
light is what enables us to see, right? I mean, mm-hmm, if, you, mm-hmm. if I were to turn off all the lights in my room, I wouldn't be able to see, right? right? You get that contrast between light and darkness. You have Jesus Christ who's the true light, the light of men coming into the world, but those in darkness did not receive him. The light comes. And Paul asked, who are you? What And, and what happens? He doesn't know who Jesus is, and he can't. Oh, actually, I cut you off a little early. Keep reading. Okay. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Remember what the old plastic description of idolatry is? (laughs) Seeing they do not see. Hearing, they they do not hear. They don't understand. So basically, you have something divine come up. Saul struck blind. The other folks who are with him, who are probably his his buddies, his cohorts, Mm -hmm. hear the voice, but they don't see anything going on. So it's boom, like... And Paul goes in and, and he does something. He or doesn't do something. For three days he neither eats nor drinks. It is as though he dies. Ah, ah, ah. For three days. Ah, ah, ah. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> are, are you getting the connections I'm getting trying to make by my, my subtle laughing? Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Then carry on. <laughs> okay. Let's see. The men oh, I already did that. Uh now. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might again regain his sight. Now, now note this. This is fascinating. Right now, Paul is blind. Physically speaking, he cannot see. But what does God say? He's praying and he sees. Seen a vision, yeah. yeah. See, he, he's, he's, seen, he's seen you, Ananias. So you're going to go because this is what I, I want you to do. So basically, you have Jesus doing some, some I'm going to, I'm going to a little bit more obviously move the, uh, the pieces around the board to get what I want to have done, done. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. Um, just as a note, Ananias is a, a faithful Christian living in Damascus. What was Paul coming to Damascus to do? Take Ananias out. <laughs> so so normally, if it was, you heard Paul's coming, you better go hide for him. And now it's, well, actually, no, he's stuck and he can't see. So you're going to have to go to him because he couldn't find you. <laughs> Do you see how this is? This is the backwards life, folks. This is this is totally topsy-turvy. In fact, Ananias kind of gets to that if you want to carry on. Sure. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about, uh, sorry, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, note the reaction. This is not a good reaction. 
Uh, wait a second. You mean Paul? Okay. Okay. May- all right, all right, Jesus, not 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 to to overstep my position, but maybe you haven't heard about what this guy has done. I I, I need to tell you how terrible Paul is because you really don't want me to do anything good for him. Um is that a good and proper approach to to how we ought to love our neighbors? Uh, in fact, well, even let us say that Paul is an enemy right now, not in the process of being converted, not not, but let's say he's just an enemy. What should you be doing for him? All right, you might have to say that again because I got a message from my uh, my recorder, much like Huey Lewis, saying that I am out of time uh, and had to restart it. So it's been a couple minutes since you just said what you said, but do you remember what you just said? All right, so um. <laughs> What what should someone say when they they hear an enemy is in trouble? Well, they should go pray for them. They should do good to them, do kindness. But but Ananias isn't really interested in showing kindness yet right now because this is a little too close to home. This this guy was coming here to drag me off in chains, and you want me to go find him now that he's been struck? Well, don't you know who he is, Jesus? Now, this is not an overflowing of Christian mercy. This is the old sinful flesh speaking because the old sinful flesh is worried about what it might have done to it. Mm -hmm. The new man in Christ just says, hey, all right, I'll show love. In fact, we'll have to hear what Jesus says after the break. Cool, cool. And we're back on the Gospel Wolvie podcast, and we are sitting in Damascus. Ananias has been told he's supposed to go, you know, pray over Paul and heal his blindness, or Saul, I should say. And are, what, do you, what do you mean, God? Jesus, what are you? Don't you know this is a bad dude, man? Bad, mm-hmm. bad dude. Don't do it. Don't do it. And Jesus is going to respond to Ananias's complaint, starting in at verse 15. So if you would read that, Thomas. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So on the what this is kind of, okay, I, I'm laughing at it. I, I shouldn't be, but it, oh, oh, you're worried that this is getting off too easy? Uh-uh, no, no. Paul's going to get kicked in the teeth. So, so if you really <laughs> want Paul to get it, don't worry, you you want to go heal him. He would have it much easier just sitting there being blind and starving. No, 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 no. He's gonna go through a lot more after you. So, so so if you really want your vengeance to kick in, yeah, this is how. But you're not you're not seeing rightly either, Ananias. You're seeing Saul, the great enemy of the church. No, no, no. You know what he is? He's my chosen instrument to spread the gospel all over the place before Gentiles and Kings and all that. So quit telling me things that you think I need to know and just go get to work because I've got this all set up. And I do like the thing of, I'm going to show him what he must suffer for the sake of my name. Uh, Thomas, Mm -hmm. let me ask you a simple question. Okay. Do do we like the idea of suffering for the sake of the name? Oh, Oh, heck no. Well, I mean, maybe in concept, but in practice? Oh, heck no. We we go nuts if someone in the state or 
oh no, America's not 95% Christian anymore. This is so terrible. Not everyone validates every single thought I have as a Christian. <laughs> I can't, oh, I can't deal. Oh no. That the Christian brand of snowflake? Right, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and so this is one where, no, Paul's going to be a Christian. And you know what that means? Okay, I hate to break this to you folks. To be a Christian means you will suffer for the sake of the name. Because when you are a Christian, uh, 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 well, there's two aspects to this. Uh, you know, in baptism, when we talk about daily dying to sin, mm-hmm, <laughs> and right, that, that's not just metaphorical language. <laughs> it, it is a full bore announcement and understanding of the Christian that I must die. If I am going to rise, I must die. And do you know what I'm doing until I die, Thomas? I'm daily beating down my own sinful flesh. I will strive to make myself suffer. Not in terms of I'm going to take myself and I'm whipping myself, but no, I'm going to strive to show love to my neighbor, which means I'm going to have to do things I don't want to do, but my neighbor needs them done, so I'm going to do them. Or more to the point, I'm going to have things I want to do that I know are sinful and wrong, but I will fight against them. And you know what this, we talk about the church militant. (laughs) That doesn't mean going out and fighting other people. That means really fighting my own sinful flesh. Mm -hmm. Paul, Paul, this, this Paul, who's going to suffer for the name will write later. I find myself to be at war with myself because the good I want to do, I don't do the the bad things. I don't want to do. That's what I ended up doing. Oh, 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 who will say, wretch that I am, who will save me from this body of death? So, so this is, no, no. Saul had thought he had it pretty easy. He was there and smug and justified. And look, I'm fighting on the right side of history and see all that I'm doing for God. I am progressing in my faith. I am a much better Jew than I was. Well, Paul gets to have a come to Jesus meeting. And actually, it's more not come to Jesus, but Jesus has come to you. And here's the reality. And he's going to be seeing the reality of the depths of his sin, the pervasiveness of what sin is, and also the glory of God in forgiving, fighting that sin, redeeming mm-hmm. it, forgiving it, all that good stuff. So does that make sense? Totally. All right. The Christian life isn't supposed to be one of ease. It, it's not. We're sinners in a sinful world. That means we have to fight against ourselves and show love to people who are jerks. You are called upon as a Christian to love even people who are jerks, and your flesh is going to hate that. But you know what? That's the way it is, because who is the biggest jerk that Jesus showed love to, Thomas, from your perspective? The biggest jerk? jerk he should well i mean saul is pretty close up there i i'll take saul without having more time or well me if i am going to be the chief of sinners all right as (laughs) as then paul would say we 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 could do it we could do it as paul would say the saints worthy of acceptance that i'm the chief of sinners i i I like the biggest jerk i think that's kind of more oh sinner no 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 the point is you're a jerk yeah. You are. You are a selfish, bitter, you, you do terrible things all the time. And, and the fact that you're nice sometimes doesn't change that fact. And yet, <laughs> whereas Ananias would say, oh, maybe we should cut off Paul. Maybe, maybe there is a certain jerkiness uh, uh, barrier or threshold which we do not pass beyond. <laughs> uh, no, no, 
no, I, I, I'll save folks even like Paul. I'll even save folks like that Eric Brown fellow Yeesh. or that Thomas Lumpke fellow or any of folks who are listening here. Because yes, Jesus indeed. doesn't say, oh, I'll save them if they're nice enough. No, it's precisely because we are sinful, evil jerks that Jesus is moved to show us love and grace and freely save us from our sin. All right. Okay. So let's get, well, let's go get Saul's eyes fixed. Yeah. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. All right. Are you ready? Okay. So, uh, later on in Romans, uh, how will they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear unless someone preaches? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And you get this played out. You have Paul, the, the great preacher who has the preacher sent to him by God to preach Christ. The word comes, the spirit is there, then there's baptism. And then what, what's the thing after baptism? And doing what? Taking food. I don't think this is just he had a ham sandwich. Probably not a ham sandwich because we haven't gotten to that discussion with Peter. I don't think this is just a peanut butter sandwich yet. I'd argue, I'm guessing this is probably the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. You have the entirety of the church happen right there. Preaching, baptism, supper, boom, all there. And, well, there you go. Now, now Saul is a convert. Now, note. He doesn't change his name to Paul here. Mm -hmm. Saul is just what he's known in Jewish communities, and Paul is what he's known as in Latin-speaking communities or Greek-speaking communities because that's the way it works. Um, different languages tend to say different names differently. Um, or you have different nicknames in various places. Here, I generally get called Pastor Brown. When, I, when I'm when i home amongst my mom and dad, I don't generally get called Pastor Brown. I get called what? <laughs> Eric, I would Yeah. Think. So uh, if, I, if I'm if i hanging out with my friends from, from college, I get called Brown. That, that's, hey, all right. Okay. So that, that's one of the things. So, all right. Well, let's, let's move on to the little next section. What does Paul do? Having having received the Holy Spirit, having been baptized, having having been strengthened by food, that's right near the word of God. What goes on next? Okay. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not uh, see, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, when it says proving that Jesus was the Christ, the argument is he is making arguments based off of the scripture. He is showing how the Old Testament says is pointing to Christ. So this is all Christological. Look, this is what Jesus has done and is doing. He is the son of God. This is all blunt and straightforward. And the reaction is, wait a second. Uh, 
No, no, no. You're doing the exact opposite of what you came here to do, Saul. You're, you're supposed to... You were supposed to destroy the Sith, not join them. Oh, okay. That was my dated Star Wars reference. But it, it, it's it's one of the... What? So, Paul is preaching. And of course... uh. You remember how Jesus said, I'm going to show him all the things he must suffer from my name? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he goes to the synagogue, starts preaching the name of Jesus, proclaims that he is the son of God. And what happens? Uh, okay. Uh, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in the wall. Uh, through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So in other words, suddenly, what does Paul have to worry about? The guy who'd been overseeing people getting killed now has to worry about what? His own life. Oh, they're going to want to kill me. (laughs) And so it's suddenly, think about the radical change. The day before he gets to Damascus, What's Paul's attitude? He is cocksure, proud. I'm the guy in charge. I'm, uh, I've am i come here to kick some backside and chew some bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Mm-hmm. All right? And yet, afterwards, now he's the one who has to kind of flee over the wall in a basket. Ugh, that That's not generally the way I'd want to get on out, but hey, they ha- he has to do it that way because they're watching the gates. So it's it's a radical shift and change in what is going on. So, having said that, do you think he would run away? Well, no. Where does he go? Carry on a little bit further. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Ah, boldly. I like that. So um, <laughs> here's Paul's day. He converts. He, he's thrown his back, uh, he's thrown away everything that he had in Jerusalem. And he goes to Jerusalem. Why? Because he wants to go talk to the disciples. And what's their reaction? Uh, no, man. No, no. We're, we're not buying it. So who goes, gets, who goes and gets Paul? Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas of all people, yeah. The, the great bold guy. Bar- no, okay, no, no, dudes, just just come and listen to him. He, he's the the son of exhortation, the son of encouragement. No, no, no. This is this is good. All right, and then carry on. All righty. Uh, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All right. So basically, Paul comes in and he is suddenly like a bull in the china shop. He is annoying people right and left. They all want to kill Paul. And then Paul gets taken back off home, gets taken out of Jerusalem. But then when he leaves, it kind of quiets down because, okay, Peter had been kind of annoying with his preaching and stuff like that. He was nothing compared to how annoying Paul was. So it's sort of like, okay, Paul's Paul's out of the picture. We we can kind of relax. And and they actually quiet down on messing with everyone else for a little bit. 
So so it's weird that that Paul the persecutor actually comes and ends up being a, a giver of peace to the Christians in the area because everyone's so mad at Paul they they forget about everyone else. It, it's it's just a, a beautiful. I will show him what he must suffer for the sake of my name. Mm-hmm. And it's not anything you would have expected at the beginning of chapter nine because again, well, it's not anything our sinful flesh would have expected, but. If you understand the depths and riches of God's love, how he loves to to save even the grossest sinners, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So have a good week. Delight in the salvation that you have in Christ because you've been baptized in his name. You are called to daily die and daily rise with him. And that's what he will accomplish for you and for you and through you and in you because that is his will for you. Have a great week, everyone. That was kind of fun.